is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For this episode, I chat with Eddie Perfect, and we cover a little bit of everything from his early inspirations in Australia all the way to Beetlejuice and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this part one with Eddie Perfect. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom, a day ahead, Eddie Perfect. Eddie, thanks for joining me. You're going to love tomorrow, Clayton. It's I, good here. I can't wait. I can't wait. I um, I have so many questions. There's so many accomplishments. You create so much. I want to try and see how much we can talk about it. Before we do, back to the beginning of time for Eddie. What were your entertainment dreams growing up? Uh, I didn't have any entertainment dreams. I come I come from a, uh, a suburb in the city of Melbourne in Australia, which is... Um, uh, called Mentone. It's yeah, you know, it's nice, really nice place on the beach. Port Melbourne sit on sort of Port Phillip Bay. Um, it's halfway between sort of St Kilda and um, the peninsula where sort of Frank's is. If any one of your listeners or viewers knows where that is, it's like a lovely, nice. It was a lovely, nice childhood, and um, my environment I grew up with was you know sort of Australian sporting kind of bent so it was you know Aussie rules football in the winter uh it was cricket in the summer I wasn't very I wasn't very sporty um and so you know I was a little bit of a square peg in a round hole and I and I I wanted to be a visual artist I wanted to be a, a painter and to draw and actually I did I studied out of school I studied printmaking at um in a fine arts degree but I just happened to be I'd always been musical and I'd always been involved in music and I was singing a lot. And so my singing studies, my private sort of singing lessons sort of led me to want to explore that while I could. You know, while I was young and still training, I thought, you know, I thought, oh, I can put the art on the back burner, you know, and come back to it. All right. But um, uh, to be honest, I guess, you know, I always wanted to be... Uh, an artist, but I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew I wanted to be an artist and I thought that um, a visual medium was my art form. And it wasn't until I was studying um, music theatre as a performer. We've got a great training institution here in Australia, in Perth, over the other side of the country, mm. in Western Australia, um, called the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, or WAPA as an acronym. And um, I discovered while I was studying there a real love of writing music and lyrics for the stage. And it was the first time I was like, oh, um, I think this is my I think this is my art form. Because songwriting is so great, it combines it can it combines more of the things I love than visual arts does. It's um, you know, I, I love music and music is infinite and you can spend your entire life just living inside music and trying to understand it and trying to express it but also the combination of music and lyrics is just something that my brain was like great everything i've read everything i want to say you know everything from poetry to nuance to style to comedy to humor that all lives in in the words and then you know all this kind of you know emotion and all this manipulative shit that music is um <laughs> also exists. you know you can be seductive and you can really you know, you can really fuck people over with music. It's great, you know. Yeah. You can get away with so much more in a song than you can just by saying it. So I just love those those um, possibilities of those things together. And so, yes, yeah, so as a that, to answer your question in a really long-winded way, I, I didn't go, oh, I want to do that. I just sort of kept falling ass backwards into it until I was like, oh, I guess I'm, 
I guess I'm a composer lyricist now. I love that. How long were you playing instruments? Were you playing instruments your whole life, or no? You did, you started to learn when you started. Yeah, I, I, my pe- my parents sent me to piano lessons when I was a real little kid. When I was um, five years old, hmm. I remember I went and did like some music classes, and then around about the same time, I started piano in, in Australia. It's called AMEB. It's a sort of a syllabus, um, and I did. Um, up to th- up to level three, so they started on one, did two the next year, and then by the time I was seven, I did three, and then I and then I was like, I'm quitting. I hate this. I hate this <laughs> because my teacher worked out that I couldn't sight read, and then I wasn't sight reading, and then I was playing everything from ear, oh. and so she the lesson would normally go, Hey Eddie, I've got a new piece for you, and she'd pull it out, put it on the stand, and then. And then she would go, this is how it goes. And she would she would play it. And I'd be like, aha. And then I would pretend to read the music, but I just was able to regurgitate what I heard very quickly. And I remember after three years, she was like, You're not, you're not reading that sheet music. And so she stopped <laughs> playing the piece for me before she, you know, when she gave me a new piece, she just wouldn't play it. She just put the music on the stand. And it just killed me for me. I was like, I can't play anymore. I'm not making sounds. I'm not making music. Mm. Um, it's not helping me learn. I don't know. Whatever she thinks is going on, it's not helping me learn to read, sight read music. I still can't really sight read music. I mean, I can sight read a solo line. Sure, but sure. the idea of like two hands and on a piano, I think someone puts it in front of me. I'm like, dude, I can't do that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I quit. I quit at the um, ripe old age of seven. I quit the piano. And then when I was in high school, um, around about eighth grade, I don't know if you remember that. You you, you probably, I don't know, you, you look maybe younger than me, but I'm <laughs> 43 now. And so I went to high school in the 90s. And it was like, you know, all the, all the Seattle sound. You know, it was grunge. It was like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Smashing Pumpkins and... Um, you know, Eddie Vedder and, mm. you know, all that smells like teen spirit. So, and I was big Guns N' Roses, Metallica fan, Rage Against the Machine. I'm like, I gotta, what am I doing? I gotta learn guitar. So I learned the guitar and I just took my knowledge of um, chords and what I was playing. Cause you know, guitar is one of those egalitarian instruments where it's not bound by classical conceptions of how you should learn it mm-hmm. with electric guitar. It's like whatever you fucking got to do to be able to make sound now and to make a song now. Do you need the tablature? Okay, we'll give the tablature. If you do, you need chords. You want to just read a chord and play that? Fine. It's like whatever, dude. Just <laughs> get it. Just start. You know what I mean? That's what sure. guitar learning is like. The opposite of classical music, where it's like you must pass through the golden gates of you know my exact <laughs> method reading the music, and you must. Get the fingering absolutely right. Whereas guitars, like, dude, we don't give a shit about any of that stuff. You want to play? You just play. So I took that attitude back to the piano, and with the help of um, my, uh, I've got an uncle who just passed away recently, but he oh, was a professional piano bar player. Never had a piano lesson in his life. Wow. And he just said to me at a very early age, he was like, "Just play what you hear on the radio. Just listen to the radio. Play what you hear." And I was like, "Okay." And so I did. I just learned to. I retaught myself the piano. 
um, just from playing by just by playing by ear, and that's how I taught myself to to um, write musicals. So you write musicals through the piano more than the guitar, or depends. Yeah, a bit of both. A bit of both. Sometimes, if you get like you know, sometimes it's um, uh, like a like for example with Beetlejuice and um, writing the Lydia's songs. Mm. I you know I imagine that you know, her sound would very much be a, like a depressed gothic girl in her bedroom with a, you know, a Fender guitar on her bed, you know, playing, you know, angry, sad songs. It was very much, you know, that was my youth, Yeah. you know, <laughs> to silver chair and, you know, um, all those sorts of like heavy rock bands and Green Day and all that stuff. So I was like, I'll write it on, I'll write that song on the guitar, but a lot of stuff I write on the keyboard, some stuff I just write while I'm, um, right on my keyboard while I'm making the song in logic. I just sort of build a track more like, I guess, a, um, like a producer would do nowadays, you know, like sure. a, when you, if you work in the contemporary music world, um, often the songs being written are being written in collaboration with um, producers and the track is being built as you're making it. So things like, um, you know, a, a kick drum pattern or a synth pattern or a, um you know, some kind of like rhythmic figure or whatever is, is built into the track as you go along. So you're sort of responding to the track. And I actually wrote a lot of Beetlejuice um, in in that way with, with that method, which means that, um, you know, you can kind of like, I would write a little phrase and I would get up on to sing, you know, Beetlejuice's part. And then I, while I was singing it, I'd have like an, an improv idea for it, for a joke or for maybe a little bit of dialogue. And that would just kind of come out and they go, oh, that's cool. I'd use that. And then, go back to the keyboard. So I kind of had a musical theater storytelling sensibility, but the method I was using, I guess, was probably more like how a contemporary producer would, would work. That's fascinating. Was this, um, were these like, um, the, the leads you were learning, like the melody or were you doing more chords or did it, it's a mix of both. Yeah, it's a mix, it's a mix of all things. So, um, you know, sometimes, it's a good way of working, especially if if it fits how you how you approach like the writing of a musical theatre song in general. And I kind of go, you know, I sort of go audience first. Like I go, okay, at this point in the piece, when music starts, what is an what is an audience expecting to hear? Like, what's the most useful thing to have here? Mm. If you just think about it in isolation and you start to write this kind of ballad without thinking about what's come before and how an audience might be feeling when the when the orchestra starts to play look at some ballad sure. are they all going to be like what the fuck why is this happening why am i hearing this that's not what i want to you know what i mean yeah. you have to kind of keep yourself in the audience's shoes going well you know like she's just divorced that guy and she's going off to um, get really drunk and then throw herself in front of a train. What's that music? You know, yeah. like that's got to that's got to have a drunken, you know, fuck you energy. And it's you know, and so you start making music from that place. Right. You know, I kind of like find the temperature. And so for me, I might be like, oh, that's got a kind of a, a rhythmic musical riff figure that's like, you like, fuck you, I'm gonna go and throw myself, kill myself. Uh, okay, cool. That's um, that's kind of where I start, and then you sort of just kind of grow it with ideas because you know you've got the, it's got the spine of it now. The song's called "Fuck You." I'm gonna go kill myself, and then 
you're like, well, now I've got the trunk of the tree. You know, I need some arguments. I need some branches that come off it that are like, you know, you never did this or you never paid any attention to me or, you know, like who's going to miss me? No one's going to miss me. And it's like, and then there'll be a middle eight. And the middle eight's always like for me, the the kind of, the one problem with the plan that's been happening where, where the person goes, ooh, I didn't think about this. But then they're like, nah, it'll be all right. And then they launch off, key change. You know, it might be like, oh, but what about the... What about the poor driver of the train who's going to be like traumatized when he smashes into my body? And he's just like a guy that just wants to like drive a train every day. It's so unfair. It's going to traumatize him <laughs> for life. And it's like, ah, I'm doing it anyway. Key change. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think about it. I love it. You just, you basically, it sounds like you just explained and broke down um, Say My Name from Beetlejuice. And she kills him in the middle of the song. She's like, he was already dead. And then, you well, know. Say My Name was such a such a bugger to write it was so complicated and because you know every time you get you get a brief whether you write the brief for yourself or whether it kind of comes in the script and it's like you know every song has stuff it needs to do mm-hmm. and some songs have like very little work to do it's like you know the normally um when you get to act two and there's that big kind of like song and dance number right. um that i always enjoy because it doesn't have to do anything it's just like Hooray, we're living inside this one idea and we're just going to dance and there's not really much information. Yeah. It's mostly just about fun and, and joy, you know. Right. Um, those sorts of things are great to write, but then something like Say My Name was like, well, you know, Beetlejuice and Lydia have to meet for the first time. There has to be a revelation of her suddenly being able to see this guy who's never been able to be seen. Right. Now, he's going to want to have to try and manipulate her into saying, because she's a living girl, saying his name three times and we want to feel like okay maybe she's going to do that but then she sort of flips a script on him and doesn't doesn't do it so how does that happen yeah and then there needs to be a battle of wits and then barbara and adam need to be drawn into it and then she bill just needs to reveal that um the ability to manipulate the living is something anyone can do and once she realizes that she knows she doesn't need beetlejuice to do that anymore so she pushes beetlejuice off the roof and then her and barbara and adam are like let's go haunt let's go terrorize my dad let's go haunt this house and oh man that is any every musical theater composer lyricist would know that like that shit sucks to write it's just not it's not a fun thing it's really complex and it's and it just takes a lot of time and it doesn't have that organic feeling because you're kind of like i don't know you're like constantly renovating the house you're like well let's just add this room on that says this and so with with say my name it uh, there are so many versions of that song with so many sections that got cut you know there was a point where um where lydia and Beatles were having a massive rap battle where you know other bits came in you know just kind of endless and i was like I don't know how to corral this this beast, and I wanted to cut "Say My Name" so many times because I didn't like, I didn't like the, I didn't like how much effort it taken, and because it took so much effort, I didn't trust it. Yeah. But um, Anthony and Scott, thankfully, the book writers Anthony and Scott were like, "No, it's it's good." And, yeah. It and I'm really surprised that ended up being such a popular song because it's a real sort of Frankenstein's monster the way it goes together. You enjoy writing musicals more than pop. Or theater. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, um, well, you know, like pop's okay, pop's okay, but and I, and I enjoy I enjoy pop music, but I'm kind of like, 
you know, I like saying, I like saying things. <laughs> it's got to end, you know, ideas and I like being free to be able to say whatever it is I want to say, not to go, oh, I want to say this, but now I've got to find a, a metaphor about, you know, like a, a handbag or, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. It's like trickier. A, I mean, it is. I feel like pop writers just look around the room and go, oh, you know, uh, table and table and chairs, you know, like I'm your table and chairs, I'm your table and chairs, you know, that kind of shit where you're like, it's a, met- it's a metaphor city. <laughs> table, and, table and chairs. You can't sit in my table and chair. You know what I mean? It's like a hit. <laughs> I can't, I can't write that shit. And also I don't, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be a pop star, 43 year old father of two from Australia. Like whatever, if that was ever on in the cards, that's certainly gone by now. And so now I'm like, well, what do I have to try and find a pop star to sing my songs? I have to go and talk to some weird 20 year old and go, Hey, I got this, Hey, I got this song called table and chairs. It's going to be a, it's going to be a hit. It'd be like, fuck off old man. It's weird. Get away from me. And I don't want to do that. So I'm yeah. like, no tables and chairs for me. No tables and chairs for Eddie. <laughs> what was the, um, what was this journey of going to New York? Um, and, you know, meeting, I guess, you know, the relationship with Tim and then meeting uh, John uh, Bazzetti. What was the, what was all that connection there? If you could piece all that together, maybe. Well, I've known um, Tim for a really long time with, um, you know, we, uh, well, from, we went to the same uh, training institution in Perth mm-hmm. or WAPA. Um, and then he played, he actually played keyboard in my band for a minute. And we used to do double bills, gigs. We've sort of been um, sort of mates for a really long time. Yeah. And then he, in 2005, he really blew up in Edinburgh and then sort of relocated to the UK and became a comedian there. And then, um, and then Matilda came his way and he wrote Matilda and Matilda was a huge hit, still is a huge hit. Um, uh, and then Matilda went to Broadway uh, and I guess that's where he met um, and started working with John Bazzetti. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know really any of, I didn't really know any of that, but there was a point in my life where I just finished working on some songs for the musical um, Strictly Ballroom, which had, uh, which Baz Luhrmann had adapted to the stage here in Australia and then they were taking it overseas. Um, and while, you know, that was kind of fun and exciting to write songs for that, it was one of those things where there were multiple, people just wrote songs and sent them in. So the score was written by, I don't know, about 10 different ten different people, which is totally fine. It's the way it, way it was. But I was like, ah, I want to get my... I want to write a whole score, you know, I want to be the composer lyricist on something and, and be in the room, you know, and right. to make decisions, work in collaboration with the book writer, not just to be at a distance writing songs and sending them off and hoping they'll use them. You know, I wanted to be on the inside. And um, so my wife said, just you need to go to New York, just get a buy a ticket and go to New York. So I did. Um, and I stopped in LA first where Tim was living and um, stayed with Tim a couple of nights. And he set up a meeting with me and his agent, John Bazzetti. And all I had to show John Bazzetti was um, I had um, 
the musical, the album of the musical that I'd written in Australia called Shane Warne the Musical, which is about an Australian cricketer, uh, which, you know, great thing to take to New York. And <laughs> that's all. And then the other, the other piece I had recording of was a, was a show I wrote with a class, I wrote for a classical ensemble and myself, a song cycle called, <clears throat> called Songs from the Middle, which is about the suburb I grew up in, in Melbourne, Mentone, even more niche. Yeah. I mean, cricket, my suburb in Melbourne. Um, but, you know, bless him, he listened to them and he read a bunch of stuff and he was like, I don't get it, but I like it. And I was like, right. <laughs> so we started working together and then yeah. I knew going up, uh, around and I uh, and was looking for a composer lyricist and I've you know, I've told the story a bunch of times, but the quick version is that, um, you know, I asked to pitch on it and they, and the team said no. And it was already kind of out to pitch with lots of other composer lyricists, people with, you know, actual reputations and, and careers. And um, everything I'd done was in Australia and they didn't know who I was. They were like, you know, maybe next time, which is fair enough. And then I offered to write um, to pitch songs for free just to, you know, so it wouldn't cost them any time or money. And they were like, oh, okay. So they sent me the script and I had a meeting and then I got a chance to write these songs and I really went hard on those songs. And and I wrote um, uh, the whole Being Dead thing and Dead Mom for those pitch songs. And, you know, you don't know how you're doing when you're inside a pitch. You just think you're, you know, giving it a go. Um, and it went, it went my way, which is great. Because I pitched on so much shit since Beetlejuice and none of it. I was like, oh, maybe that's what happened. You know, maybe I'm just this genius and I'll get everything I I write, right? You know, right, like, right, right. oh, I'm Mr. Magic Pants. And I um <laughs> and I've pitched on like so much stuff and everyone's like, nah. <laughs> so it's very you know, I um I have much more realistic idea of how the world works now so um yeah so beetlejuice was but beetlejuice was great because it was it was right it was the right idea for me it was it, it just you know you it's that's a huge amount of luck is a project that um that you connect with and also at the right time you know i've been writing musical musical theater and musical comedy for a really like a good chunk of time like about um uh, you know, like I started in, in 2002 and I got that job in, I feel like, like 2015, 2016. Mm. Um, you know, so it's like 14 years of, of, you know, touring, writing, performing comedy music for actual audiences all, all around the place. And, um, uh, and so, you know, it was the right idea with the right sensibility. It's dark, it's comic, it's funny, it's, you know, it's sort of edgy, it's sort of slightly unhinged and crazy. It uses lots of different styles. It's, um, and so I was really fortunate that um, I was there, you know, and I pushed and I got the opportunity. And, and I was also really lucky that people like um, Mark Kaufman um, and Kevin McCormick at um, Warner Brothers just, like, gave me the gig and they had no idea. They never met me. And no, I never met me. I literally was like, oh, I guess I should, um, I guess I should fly to New York and meet these guys now that I've got this job. So I literally got on a plane just to go and, just to go and meet them. And that was that crazy weekend. Do you remember, you would remember, um, there was like, I think 2016, there was that blizzard that, um, that shut down Broadway for like 
the whole weekend. Oh yeah, and it was right in the first season of when the original cast of Hamilton was still going. Because we 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 saw Hamilton on the Tuesday after that had like four days off, and everyone was like, "Whoa, Broadway was closed for like four days. It was insane." You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. Listening.